Hello and welcome to the Old Man Sailing Podcast. I'm John Passmore and what we have here is a dip into the Old Man Sailing blog, the Old Man Sailing books, and I should explain that this is an amateur podcast. I'm not sitting in a dedicated sound booth surrounded by expensive equipment. I'm sitting in the cabin of my boat Samsara with a cheap headset. So you will hear clicks and buzzes. You will hear me stumbling over my words. And you may hear extraneous noises. I know about this because all of this comes as the culmination of years of attempting to record my book, Old Man Sailing, and also launch this podcast. The book I started recording in Walton Backwaters on my phone with one of those little sort of fiddly wire headsets that you stick in your ears. I recorded the whole thing and then attempted to load it up onto the Audible website. And of course Audible then put it through all their electronic checks and quality control and what have you and sent it back and said this is hopeless we're not going to have this so I tried again I bought myself a uh, a microphone on a sort of angle poised stand that clamped to the table I got myself a proper f uh, set of earphones it all became very very cumbersome I had to find somewhere to put it all and uh, I would be halfway through and then suddenly the most dreadful cacophony would erupt from the adjacent mud bank where several thousand Canada geese had been sitting there quietly listening to me and then suddenly decided they were fed up with it and were going to have a practice circuit of the estuary to get ready for their great migration. Of course as soon as Canada geese take off they all start honking and the noise was absolutely appalling. So I, I packed that in and thought well I'll try again later. And the next opportunity I had to record something was while I was waiting to have the anchor galvanised in Lossiemouth in Scotland. And so I thought, well, I'd get it all out again, have another go. And what I hadn't considered was that I was right next to the Royal Air Force's fighter station at Lossiemouth. And uh, every 10 minutes, one of these enormous Eurofighters would go roaring off and rattle all the windows and completely obliterate anything I was attempting to say. But... Uh, I'm not going to give up, so we'll try again. But please, uh, you know, be accommodating when you hear cracks and whistles and buzzes and somebody in the boatyard starts drilling. Uh, we'll just see how we get on. So, first of all, what have we got? Uh, just a second, I have to go and click the right button so you can tell this really is amateur. This all goes back to when I first saw Samsara. Uh, I went up to North Wales on the train and after checking into the cheapest B&B, &B, the whole place smelled of milk, uh, stale milk at that, I walked down to the marina for a preview. A preview is always a good idea. You don't want the vendor to witness your first impression. Actually, in this instance, it might not have been such a bad idea. The first impression was that this had been a wasted journey. While it was one thing for an old boat to show her age, you don't want an antique to look as though it just came out of the factory. It is quite another for the word shabby and a sorry state and sadly neglected to come to mind. 
Wherever you looked, there were scuffs and chips and poorly filled holes. The scuppers were clogged with leaves and filth, and, and there were things growing in the cockpit grating. One glance at the stem showed that the ancient 35-pound CQR had been taking bites out of it for years, to the point where the owners seemed to have given up worrying about it. But I was looking for a boat to be my pride and joy, a joy for years to come. But I was not looking for a project. All the same, it was a long way to come and not see the whole boat. So the next morning found me returning at the appointed time to find the owner had clearly been there for some time while attempting to put an encouraging gloss on things. He needn't have bothered, because it was at this point that the boat took over. Little by little, without a lot of fuss or ostentation, she revealed herself to be just what I had been looking for all my life. I won't go into this now, because I intend to have far too much fun writing at leisure about the way each little discovery came to light. But let's just say that thirty years ago, when I sat drifting in my old rival Largo, and made a list of all the improvements I would like to see. Almost all of them had already been incorporated into Samsara. As for the scuffs and chips and holes, well, they were cosmetic. The main thing was that the boat was sound. Best of all, she was another rival 32, and surely I could find someone with an electric polisher. In fact, I did better than that. I found a wonderful man called Barry Lovell and his little company TLC Boat Repair. It was the fact that the celebrated yachting writer Tom Cunliffe had trusted Barry with his constance that resided me. After all, Tom is a noted perfectionist. But it wasn't just that Barry and his team made such a wonderful job of the new locker lids in the cockpit or replacing the dreadful black rubber tow rail with yards of teak or that they scrabbled around underneath scraping off years of anti-fouling, or even that he never charged for fixing the leak in the water tank that made all the difference, because Barry knows everyone. Early on in our friendship, he said to me, John, he said, whatever you need, you come to me. I'll look after you. For there was I, a stranger in town, three hundred miles from home, knowing no one, and about to take a leap of faith with my pride and joy. And Barry put me on to all the right people. There was Richie Williams, in a workshop which looked as though it was waiting to be condemned, who took the airy self-steering gear apart piece by piece, understood instinctively how it worked, even though he'd never seen one before, and put it back together again like a sewing machine. There was Dave Worthington, who worried away at the prop shaft so that I could have a feathering propeller, which is as exciting as other men find getting a Ferrari. There was Mike Kelly, the stainless steel specialist, who worked up until midnight because I forgot to tell him I wasn't going in the water the next day after all. Dave Evans, with his brilliant idea for the new gas locker, Dave Jones, who calmly accepted my electronic foibles, like getting a regulator from Singapore instead of Milton Keynes. 
Over three and a half months they came and they worked and they humoured me. And if the launch date was put off and put off again until here we were going in the water in September, none of this matters if we get it right in the end. And we have. In fact, I have decided to add an extra page to this blog, a page of links to the people who have made it all possible. It is the least I can do. False Starts A 38-foot steel cutter with a purpose-built workshop and a water maker and a solid fuel stove and some means of getting the dinghy out of the water. We've all got the ideal boat. I found mine while going to a family wedding in Australia. The owner had done much of the fitting out himself, all with loving care. You could see how much of his soul went into this. After all, it was his big project, his retirement in the sun. The trouble was, by the time he finished it, he was too old. His health had taken a turn for the worst, and she was up for sale for a fraction of what he'd spent on her. Well, she was too much for me, both in terms of expense and the sheer weight of the gear. But she did provide a vital lesson. You're never going to be completely ready. As long as the boat is properly seaworthy, it is more important to get on your way than to have somewhere dry to put the loo paper. It was this thought that pushed me out of Conway Marina yesterday. In fact, it was the same thought that pushed me out the day before. After nearly three months, Samsara went into the water. This was the third booking I had made for the hoist. The first was wildly over-optimistic, so we won't think about that one. The second was after the man with the electric polisher I had hired to smarten up the hull announced, hang on, this has been painted. And it had to. Nobody had noticed. Even the surveyor hadn't noticed. Of course, once a hull has been painted, it has to go on being painted. I spent a depressing 24 hours looking up the cost of a respray and then went out and bought a paintbrush. I must say, I'm very pleased with the result. If you don't get too close, you'd never notice. But, of course, that meant the four coats needed a week to harden before she could go in the slings. So, when we reached the third attempt, and Dave Worthington, the engineer, came down to oversee his skin fittings getting wet for the first time, we started the engine. The engine was one of the many things in excluded from the survey. It took several attempts at starting. Dave bled the fuel. He listened, head cocked to one side, clearly not happy. Although it ran, it didn't seem to pick up properly, as if the cylinders were having trouble working out who was going to go first, like a rugby club making for the saloon bar. It'll probably sort itself out when it's run a bit, said Dave. It might not have been started for a couple of years. And that was how I found myself halfway through the tortuous passage over the Conway bar, with no engine and no wind. Fortunately, there was no tide, either. I called up the marina. Did they have a workboat handy to come and rescue me? Conway Marina did not offer any service outside the confines of their property, for insurance purposes. 
I was advised to call the Coast Guard on Channel 67. Well, I was not going to call the Coast Guard. Do that and they send a lifeboat for you. Instead, I stood on the foredeck with a coil of rope in my hand and waited for a passing yacht. They took me to the marina entrance, where a workboat ventured just outside, as the man said, If they discipline me, I'll resign. And the next morning, Dave returned and discovered that the electric off switch was sticking. I could have spent a day bleeding the system without discovering that. Actually, thinking about the old man who left it too late, I almost left it too late. I can very well remember what happened when I was 66. I suddenly got old. I mean, it was as if somebody just thrown a switch and everything fell apart. I started falling asleep in my car. I actually crashed a brand new car, only about a mile from home. Um, I had pains in my hands from presumably arthritis. Uh, if I cut myself, it would become infected. It was a, it was a nightmare. Uh, then I discovered something which stopped all of that. And it now keeps me going uh, without apparently any illnesses or physical troubles at all. I don't take any pharmaceutical products. In fact, I don't carry any on the boat, not even an aspirin. If you want to find out about all this and how you can do the same, there's a good health page on the blog. Just go to oldmansailing.com and then forward slash good health. Meanwhile, let's take a look at wizard law and the single-handed sailor. Harry Potter's wand chose Harry Potter. Everyone knows this. So, is it beyond the reach of imagination to suppose that the boat chooses the skipper? Because to some of us, boats are not like cars or washing machines. Boats are not things. If you don't believe that a boat enters into a partnership with our skipper, particularly the single-handed skipper, then you have not sailed a long-distance single-handed. Read Joshua Slocum. Read Bernard Moitessier, read Helen MacArthur. These sailors understood that it wasn't just them sailing the boat. The boat herself had an input. Indeed, when the skipper was exhausted and unable to make sensible decisions, then it would be the boat that would take over and ensure that they both survived. Of course, this is not something he would want to rely on like the Winnie Bago owner of legend who set the cruise control and went to make a sandwich and then sued the manufacturers when the thing drove off the road. In fact, I would suggest it is possible that in peculiar instances a boat might appear to take over two or three times before the more logical sort of sailor can bring themselves to talk about it. But in the annals of single-handing, there are far too many accounts of unexplained good fortune for it to be a coincidence. There I was, sailing across the Grand Banks in not the best of visibility. It was 1988, so radar was a luxury, but I did have a gadget which was supposed to detect radar signals from other vessels. 
It was very expensive, and the box made it sound tremendously clever. But I had never known it to work. Meanwhile, the Ares wind vane steering was in command, and I was asleep with the alarm set for twenty minutes. This had been going on for twelve hours or more, and I was heartily sick of the incessant hopping up and down. There was never anything there. All day long, just an opaque grey curtain about a mile away. Now, in pitch darkness, it was like being in another dimension. No stars, nothing distinguished the sea from the sky, just a faint glow of phosphorescence in the wake, and only the rustle under the bow to show that we were slipping along nicely at three knots. And now the alarm. The kitchen timer was on the other side of the cabin. It wasn't going to stop until I got up. Of course, being so well used to this incessant beeping, I was experiencing a certain satisfaction in lying there and putting up with it. And then the boat lurched. After a while, you get to recognize a lurch. It can be from the sudden shallow water, it can be from a whale surfacing alongside, although it's the fishy smell that gets you with that. It can also be the wake of a passing ship. Very close. Suddenly, framed in the companionway, filling the, with a blaze of light, was a Grand Banks trawler her stern filled with men in filthy oilskins staring out into the darkness. And then, as they watched, the boat swung back onto her course. I looked at the compass. Good Lord, we had been off course. That was why we passed across the fisherman's stern, not his bow. In fact, we must have been off course by as much as thirty degrees, just when it made all the difference between being rammed and being an object of curiosity during the long night gutting cod. And how was that possible? On a calm night with a steady breeze, for the wind vane suddenly to bear away by that much, and more to the point, resume the course once the danger was past. On a scale of weirdness, it was right up there with abominable snowmen and Morris dancing. I reckon I know, because the same thing happened to me once in the Chanel de Four, when the fog came down in the middle of the tricky bit, and on the way to the Azores, when it would have been just as easy to sail into the enormous rusty structure floating just below the surface, uh, so close that I could see the little crabs scuttling about on the long fronds of seaweed. I know what the cynics will say, that there are just as many examples of sailors who perish with their boats. A cynic might argue that all of this is just the law of averages mixed up with an unhealthy dose of wishful thinking. But I believe it happens, and I believe it is happening again. A Thing of Beauty well, that's settled then. The new propeller is going underwater. I wanted to keep it on the saloon table as a conversation piece, 
But Paul, the engineer, started talking about stepped key material, and I lost my enthusiasm for argument. However, you must agree that the new prop is a thing of beauty. A hand crafted, individually, made to order, fed a stream from Darglow. It looks like something you buy in a private viewing at one of those little galleries between Soho and Mayfair, and then take home to be the centrepiece for the dining table, so that people can exclaim. However, as I say, I lost the argument, and reasonably so. After all, I'm told it will give me an extra 10% of speed. That means a 10-day trip to the Azores suddenly becomes 9 days. Of course, I could get the same effect by buying a new Genoa, but how much would that cost, and how long would it last? So spending more than a thousand pounds on a propeller doesn't seem quite so mad after all. People spend a lot more buying a Monet or a Renoir. It's just that they don't keep it under water. Gaining access. The final payment had just about cleared. There was not a mark on the gel coat, and the first barnacle had yet to think about testing the anti-fouling. With a certain amount of ceremony, the new owner removed the colour-coordinated cover from the wheel, spun it experimentally, and then swore as it bounced back and attempted to snap off his thumb. He tried it the other way. He tried it both ways. He peered over the stern into the murky waters of the tide-locked marina. Something was preventing the wheel from turning. Now, you don't want to cause a fuss at this point, not as the new owner who hasn't even made a start on the pile of instruction manuals, but this was a brand new boat, just out of the box, as it were. The wheel should turn, shouldn't it? The wheel clamp was off, the self-steering disengaged, so what was stopping it? Just as well it had happened now, rather than half a mile outside the fairway buoy. The owner looked around the cockpit for some sort of access hatch to the steering gear. Uh, there were hatches to the aft cabins, port and starboard, a flap for the fresh water shower on the swimming platform, another for their bilge pump, and oh look, here was the cockpit entertainment system. He could blast Rod Stewart into a lovely secluded cove with that. He did find the head of the rudder stock, neatly hidden beneath a flush-fitting circular cap, and he found the emergency tiller under the navigator's seat just no access to the steering gear itself. Eventually, after a rather sheepish phone call to the sales department, <laughs> I hate to bother you, I'm sure it's something really simple, uh, but I'd be awfully grateful if a young man with a tool bag arrived from the yard's engineering department. He swung himself down into the starboard aft cabin. Nah, no nah, trouble at all, soon have you on your way. He swung himself down into the port aft cabin. The owner found him there ten minutes later, sitting on the edge of the double berth surrounded by squashed memory foam and discarded locker lids, 
talking into his mobile and saying, Nah, the headboard's part of the barkhead. It was late the next day that instructions arrived from the builders in France. Here, cut an excess hatch in cistern. I was told this story by the shipwright who came to remove my stanchions. You never think that you'll have to remove stanchions, do you? But after 44 years, the wire begins to wear away at the holes. The surveyor takes note, and the insurance company insists, uh, even though the wear is on the inside. But would you believe we took eight of them out? Twenty-four nuts, which hadn't moved in almost half a century. Oh, we did collect a very nice little pot of screws as the headlining came down. Tiny hatches opened in places nobody had ever thought about. In short, we had access. I like to think that this is because that's the way they built the boats in 1973. But in fact, it has just as much to do with the previous owner who remodelled the cabin in the 1990s. He screwed a little plaque to the bulkhead to commemorate the work, and very rightly so. He did a beautiful job. He took the boat sailing for years at a time, the Caribbean up the east coast of the USA, and all the while he was thinking, what we need is a handhold here, and it would be really useful to have somewhere to put a pen torch that you could reach from your bunk. And thinking of bunks, why not arrange things so that you can change the width from plenty of room in harbour to nice and snug for rolling down the trades? In fact, he thought of almost everything. What he failed to consider was the possibility that one day his boat would fall into the hands of someone who didn't want yacht legs. Yacht legs are a wonderful invention if you really want to sit on the sand. But how often will I want to do that? And think of the room they take up and the astonishing amount they weigh. So I set to removing the ugly fittings from the rubbing strake. Down came the headlining again. Out came the fridge and the fitted lockers. In the end, it was the safe that stumped me. Yes, the boat has a safe. Quite sensibly, it was not installed with a view to being removed. So, yes, we now have two small access hatches high up on each side of the saloon. At least, they're on the inside. Let's talk about money for a moment. A very vulgar subject, obviously. But the thing is, if you're going to go long-term cruising, you do need money coming in. And that can be a problem. I mean, you don't want to have to stop and get a job. What you need, of course, is a residual income. Now, people do this by selling their big expensive house and buying two or three holiday cottages and having an agent run the whole thing. But that's all very well if you've got an expensive house to sell. For a lot of people, all they've got is the boat, especially if they want to go sailing on a long-term basis when they're still young and fit enough to do it. The best decision I ever made in my entire life 
was to build up a residual income. The interesting thing is I didn't have the money to do it in the traditional way by buying stocks and shares or houses or whatever it might be. No, what I invested was time over a period of 11 years. At the end of that time I had an income which was more than most people get from working a 40-hour week. Yes, absolutely. It's all explained on a page of the blog, of course. So just go and have a look if you're interested. oldmansailing.com forward slash money. Meanwhile, let's take a look at one of the books. This is from Black Box Navigation. Halfway between Guernsey and Lazardrio, just by that ominous legend above the chart about magnetic anomalies, the gremlins got into the VHF. Well, it seemed more likely than the other explanation that Jersey Radio had left the set switched to one watt, but certainly all they seemed able to offer was a long, if dignified, silence. That was broken by another plaintive call from a second confused yachtsman, also twiddling knobs and getting nowhere. So I called him up. I can't raise them either, I complained. I ought to be able to. I'm halfway between Guernsey and Lizardria. Where are you? That was when the only other person in the world I could talk to told me this. Where, where am I? I'm, uh, hold on a minute, I'm at 48 degrees 75 decimal 31 minutes north, 0, 3 degrees 26 decimal 25 minutes west. The Decker navigator had struck again. The conversation progressed a little beyond that. We established that he had just come out of Lazaggio bound west, but somehow he couldn't bring himself to put it so simply. Like many of the new generation of button-pushing yachtsmen, he was entirely obsessed with the microchips. It was a bit like asking the time of someone with a digital watch and being told 1549 instead of 10 to 4. I consoled myself with a beer and the knowledge that, according to my trusty C-fix, I was somewhere in a cocked hat, ten miles by fifteen, just west of the Banc de Longuistière. Uh, what worried me more was that where we were going in this pastime that is supposed to get us back to nature, at one with the universe and all that. What of the old seaman-like skills? gauging the leeway by squinting down the logline, adding a bit for the tidal stream at the end of a gale. What hope for them in an age when the black box on the bulkhead can tell you the difference between the two sides of a pencil line on the chart? I was beginning to sound depressingly like the old boy in the yacht club who greeted the appearance of the first depth recorder back in the fifties with the question, what happens when it goes wrong? And then something very embarrassing happened. My colleague and occasional crew, the somewhat dangerous Woodgates, came up with the idea of racing. Racing would 
test us, he expounded in the pub after work. Racing would bring us glory, he insisted, pushing another pint of Braxpears into my hand. Against all wisdom and common sense, I entered us for the first yachting monthly triangle race, described, as far as I remember, as reasonably testing for two-handed amateur crews. With a course centred in the western approaches, taking in Falmouth, Crosshaven and Morgat, I could see why they would say that. Never mind, Woodgates had a secret weapon. Unzipping his enormous sailing bag, covered in yachting logos, he produced from the mess of dank oilies and mismatched socks the very latest thing, a Decker Navigator. With the same sort of expansive promise that had got me into the race, he had talked it out of the manufacturers. We could keep it for the whole summer, he said. It would win us the race, he said. But it wasn't going to let it run the ship. Oh, no, I regarded Largo, rival 32, as a proper ship. And proper ships, unlike modern light-displacement rubbish, don't rely on microships. So we set off from Poole, bound westwards for Falmouth. It was the same as always, an ingenious plan for catching the tide off the headlands and letting the east-going stream waste itself in the bays, a plan that promptly got blown apart by a healthy westerly sending us bashing out into the channel. By mid-afternoon, the little crosses of the dead reckoning were marching off somewhere in the direction of Ushant. The decker navigator looked down from the bulkhead, beeping as it saw fit and occasionally changing one figure on its screen for another. It didn't matter to me what it changed them to. I knew where I was. Hadn't I just squinted down the logline, spent long minutes watching the compass to gauge an average of our course? Still, it would be interesting to test the accuracy of this box of tricks. The cross it provided, an unusual vertical and horizontal affair like something out of a maths textbook rather than the normal X of the DR, was somewhat eight miles to the northeast and only five hours after losing the coast. Thank heavens, I was only borrowing the thing. Imagine spending close on a thousand quid on something that puts you eight miles out after only five hours. That's almost a mile and a half of error for every hour. By the time it got to Falmouth, it would probably find it was in the Skagarak. It was at this point that Woodgate said something rather disrespectful and possibly mutinous. Perhaps the machine's right and your DR is wrong. Well, hardly likely, was it? Not when you had a skipper so steeped in the law of the sea that his Breton cap, were it possible to prise it off his head, would keep a marine biologist entertained for a week. But the challenge had been made. Honour was at stake. I took the trusty Seafits from its bracket. I waved it in the direction of such places as Portland Bill, the Channel Light Vessel and the Casquettes. Portland Bill was rather a long way away and had to be discounted as unreliable. After that, its bearing went with absurd accuracy straight through the middle of the Decker Cross. It was the other two which were more embarrassing. They met in a mocking fix even further to the east. After that, I took to putting the chart away between the hourly plots. 
Apart from anything else, it left the table clear for ever more detailed calculations of the tides. But all the same, the two lines of crosses stalked off in two very obviously different directions down the channel. The hand-bearing compass and the beam of the channel light vessel joined the C-fix in siding with the decker. The following day, even the sun agreed with the microchips. Either that or I'd done something unnatural with my transit. It was a rather subdued skipper who sailed into Falmouth. The decker beeped triumphantly, and Woodgates reminded me that I owed him a pint of St. Austell in the chain locker, something to do with a bet about which I could remember nothing. Mellowed slightly later that night, I did concede that it was convenient to have an accurate fix far from land. Convenient, though hardly important, because the old ways will always get you home in the end. Now, I've left it until right at the end to talk about books, because you may already have read them all, in which case you can ignore the rest of the podcast. But all of this began with the old man sailing. What had happened is that when the Covid lockdown came along, I decided that I didn't much fancy the idea of being shut at home, as the over-70s were advised to do, uh, and I went off sailing. The plan was to get 12 miles offshore where nobody could interfere with me uh, and I would be entirely on my own, completely isolated. And I sailed off down to the Azores and the plan was to do a sort of figure of eight round the Canaries and come back again. And uh, I blew out the mainsail, completely destroyed it, limped home with the trysail and arrived back in Falmouth just as all the lockdown was beginning to come to an end. And uh, Jeremy Vine on his BBC radio show was asking his listeners what they would miss about lockdown. So I just sent him an email saying, well, I missed the whole thing. I went sailing. The next morning, the BBC rang up and said, this sounded fascinating. Would I do a 10-minute interview? So I did the 10-minute interview, which you can hear. It's on the blog, um, on, I believe, the contact page. Anyway, you'll find it there somewhere. And uh, I did this interview, and suddenly... The blog achieved, I think it was 40,000 hits, and the WordPress site actually crashed under the onslaught. And then the next thing I had was a, a literary agent saying, would I write a book? And, well, I did, but the publisher didn't want it because they said, who is this guy? Is he famous? So I put it on Amazon. And that was 2021. January, I think, 2021. And uh, it's sold 10,000 copies. And it's now translated into French. And the whole thing has taken off. So there's not just the old man sailing book. There are five, six of them on out there. And it's now what I do. I, I write books and I publicize them and I do the podcasts. And it, it's become an entire industry. So um, you can find the whole thing, of course, on the blog, oldmanselling.com. So head over there. And I look forward to talking to you on the next episode of the Old Man Sailing podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>